This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast where each week we pick three articles from the magazine and go through them with the writers behind them. This week, Will and I are going to be looking at the future of Labour and what might happen should Keir Starmer stand down. We'll also be looking at Oxbridge applications and why Oxbridge seems to be turning against private school students. And finally, we'll be looking at the menopause. Are we talking about it too much? First up, we're joined by Katie Balls and the journalist Paul Mason to talk about Keir's possible departure. Katie, in The Spectator this week, you ask what's next for Labour now that Keir Starmer is also being investigated by the police for allegedly breaking COVID rules. How has the news of the investigation and how has the news of Starmer's uh, promise to resign if he is fined been greeted by Tory MPs? So I think it's an interesting one in the sense Beergate is not good for Keir Starmer. I think that you can see in his uh, decision to say he's going to resign um, if he does receive a fixed penalty notice, Labour actually taking back some control of the situation. I think probably making the best from a bad hand. But what's been interesting is... Tory MPs and Tory aides have been pushing Beergate for obvious reasons, to distract from Partygate, to suggest all politicians are as bad as each other. And I think when the police announced that they were going to investigate on the day of the local election results, just as the results really started to get quite grim for the Tories, particularly in the South, I think there was a real sense of jubilation. I think uh, many people couldn't quite believe their luck. But then I think as the days went on to the weekend, the penny started to drop that, oh no, we, we might actually have almost been too successful what if this leads to Keir Starmer actually stepping down in which case one thing would of course be oh well that sets a dangerous precedent for Boris Johnson not one I think he would follow but I think a bigger concern is oh wait we actually quite like going up against Keir Starmer we think that he is probably a ca- an opponent we know how to attack we think he is not connected with voters what if the person who replaces Keir Starmer is a bit better and Paul if Keir Starmer does have to resign what next for Labour I very much doubt that this will happen. I know that's the politician's answer, but as a journalist, I I still doubt it. A, Durham Police don't have a policy of issuing retrospective fines. And B, I think his case is quite strong in terms of the schedule of the day. Since, you know, we are journalists and we, you know, I have no problem discussing hypotheticals. If If Starmer was forced to resign, I think it would make... Uh, a big splash, a sort of moral statement about politics, that Labour as a party and as an organism would be pretty well-placed to capitalise on. Its tactical problem then would be if Angela Rayner is also forced to resign, which she, she said she would if she got a fine, then there'd be, it'd be sort of leaderless resistance for a few weeks. The, so I, I don't know. I don't really know. I think the NEC would have to appoint an interim leader if both leader and deputy went at once and then as Katie points out in her article in The Spectator then there are, there are a few obvious candidates for who that might be. Continuing in the hypothetical vein Katie who who are the possible runners and riders? Yeah and I mean I agree with Paul that we are talking hypotheticals but as journalists you know it's what we like to do and I think just on that I mean the tricky thing for Keir Starmer is, is this gambit of saying he might resign has just opened this whole conversation about who could replace him which even as and I think there's reason to think obviously the Durham police 
would not issue a fixed penalty notice on precedent. But no party leader wants to have this active conversation going on while while they're in charge. It's just an unhealthy thing because you start to think about the current leader's problems and and who could do better in various ways. So in that vein, I think that the probably the figure that I think most Labour MPs think would have a good chance in terms of how the contest works and also potentially be quite good at the role as Lisa Nandy, who is currently the Shadow Leveling Up Secretary, former Shadow Foreign Secretary, went for the leadership last time. And I think widely part of the reason Lisa Nandy is being talked up aside from the fact that Dominic Cummings once suggested the Labour Party should just replace Starmer with Lisa Nandy um, because he thought uh, you know, a woman from the Midlands um, would do much better against Boris Johnson, is the fact that Lisa Nandy, I think, is to the left of Keir Starmer. I think she'll get uh, union support. And you can start to see how the support around her would mean that she would do quite well in a contest. I think that then you have Wes Streeting, who's definitely being talked up by both Labour MPs and some Tory MPs too, as a rising star in the party he had a big promotion to shadow health secretary recently after coming through cancer and has been making you know lots of media appearances and I think is seen as one of their best performers um, but I think the question on where streeting is he is seen as a centrist is he potentially a bit too I know he's right wing and inverted commas for the membership and also is he a well enough name to get that union support but I think those are the two you hear a lot about there's also people like Yvette Cooper Rachel Reeves, Bridget Phillipson, David Lammy. So you'd expect more, but I think those are the two gaining the most um, momentum right now. And Paul, what do you, what do you think of Katie's uh, list of, of, of possible future candidates there? Do you think it's true that Boris Johnson might struggle most against someone like Lisa Nandy? I think the first thing I'd throw in is that there are obvious factions within the Labour Party, and not not just political factions. You know, as you say, the trade unions are incredibly important. And what I've noticed since Starmer made this statement that he, you know, he would stand down if fine, is actually that these different factions have have refrained from entering this discussion, almost even preventing themselves even at the hypothetical level. I mean, you know that most politics is done by a WhatsApp group, and. I think that the kind of average, the standard warning in the WhatsApp group is let's not start speculating what we're going to do if he stands down because most Labour MPs are betting that he will not stand down and they don't want to be the ones who's, you know, at midnight shown to their their WhatsApp group is revealed to the whips uh, as having started this discussion. So let's be clear about that. However, I don't share, um, I mean, most Labour people would not share the view that Nandy is to the left of Starmer. She's probably connected more with the Red Wall working class than Starmer. Uh, And then again, so is Angela Rayner. Of the left, I mean, you mentioned in the article Zara Sultana, age 28, in her first stint as an MP. She's highly capable and well regarded, but I don't think the left has a candidate. They're not strong enough. The 33-strong socialist campaign group is divided on almost every issue, including Ukraine. And I think they, if there was a contest, they would be minded to support somebody, a kind of, you know, Starmer 1.0, somebody more like the Starmer of, of, of early 2020. Uh, they'd be looking for a soft left candidate. Or for the centre of the, you know, the, the right of the party in our terms, then, yes, yeah, Streeting is clearly sort of setting his stall out. I think Lisa Nandy has, is quite obviously probably one of the most senior people, but don't rule, rule out Yvette Cooper. She's playing a blinder in the Commons at the moment against the, 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 the retreating Pretty Patel, who has managed to escape from the Commons without being 
uh, able to answer any questions. Katie, of course, in Jeremy Corbyn, Labour did have a man who appealed to the left and it was electorally disastrous. Do you think Labour does need to appeal to the left or is it more wise trying to appeal to the centralist vote? Yeah, I mean, I think as Paul's just pointed out, the tricky thing, if it, and obviously the left of the left and the left, and it gets very, um, you know, in terms of what you're talking, it can be a bit hard to decipher. But I think in terms of a candidate like Corbyn, just in terms of the mathematics, it's just going to be really hard for that uh, faction of the party to get someone. I think in terms of what they need to be reaching out for, I think part of the reason that people are talking about people like Lisa Nandy, Angela Rayner, is I think by having a northern woman, you relate more to Red Wall voters. And I think that's where many people see their weak spot as currently being where Keir Starmer is struggling the most. I think that he looked, though, at the leadership contest, which Keir Starmer won, and uh, what Paul was just referring to, you know, that perhaps the first version of Starmer. I mean, Keir Starmer effectively pitched himself as a friend of Jeremy Corbyn, someone who would, you know, carry through on many of the pledges, uh, probably keep some sense of Corbynism alive. And he over time, has obviously moved quite far away from that. I think the fact that you have Rachel Reeves as shadow chancellor, something that he didn't feel able to do when he first won, but slowly got to, does show you how actually lots of people, in terms of Corbyn supporters, feel as though they were sold uh, something that wasn't the case by Keir Starmer. But it does, I think, also reflect that in a Labour leadership contest, you would... you. you it's going to be hard. You may need to have someone uh, make similar pledges because I think what no one is quite sure about is where exactly the Labour membership is these days. There has been a big drop-off in members since uh, Jeremy Corbyn left the stage. And I think lots of people have taken that to mean that it is a far less Corbynite membership. But is that to the point that they see someone like Wes Streeting or Yvette Cooper and think that this is what they want? Or is, or is it, you know, some combination where a candidate who is, you know, soft left, more to that side, is going to do better? I think that's right. But there are other dynamics at work. So... For example, the remain-leave dynamic hasn't gone away. And if you think about the two um, parties that did quite well on May the 5th, the Greens and the Lib Dems, if you're a Labour activist and you were in that second referendum remain camp, even if you accept we're never going to rejoin the European Union, what you're worried about is the Greens and Lib Dems taking votes off Labour. And there are people who would be looking in any future, you know, this is hypothetical because, as I say, it's not, I don't think it's going to happen. They'd be looking for, for somebody to solve that problem. I think you're right, Katie, that the actual left, the socialist campaign group, don't have enough people to stand a candidate. You did mention Rachel Reeves, and I think that Rachel Reeves, someone who has in the past professed no desire for leadership, is, has, it has been noted by the Labour members, that she's pretty good and blazing at times at the dispatch box. And it's, it's quite popular because she, you know, she, a South London person, but nevertheless based in Leeds. And although her, her area of Leeds is kind of half Red Wall, half not, she's a very effective politician in the Red Wall. She does a lot of underground campaigning. So we've, the, the, the amazing thing is for Labour, we've got actually a depth of talent behind Starmer. And the project would be set. The project is, this, is, is, is where it is now. Its next phase has to go into concrete policy offers. That's what I've been saying. That's what many people like me are saying. There's not enough policy. You can't do it all with narrative and morality. But given that, I'm not convinced there'd be a huge difference over, over policy were any of those people to take Labour in the next phase 
But as again, I say, because as a supporter of Kia, I just don't think he's going anywhere. And um, I also, what I found quite funny writing this piece was, as Paul's just touched on, so we've clearly been covering Boris Johnson and one of the reasons Boris Johnson seems quite safe at the moment, despite everything, such as, you know, more fines today being announced on Partygate, though we don't know if any are specifically to do with him is the sense that there is not really anyone around who could replace him and that almost seems to be a dearth of talent in the cabinet. Then you call around and Tory MPs and Labour MPs about... You know, I think well, that's quite harsh, though, Casey. Katie, can I interrupt? I, I do think there's a bit of talent in the cabinet. I think there are some talented people. We can find out here in a second. Uh, but what I mean is, often you say, oh, we can't replace this person because there's no one who can step into the role. And also, to Paul's point, the issue is, it's not a leader of the opposition for the Tories. It's someone who can step in and be prime minister, which does raise the stakes a bit for some of the people who are less experienced, should promise. But I think the problem is, when you call around people, Tory MPs and Labour MPs, it's almost like, as though they look at the people behind Keir Starmer. And I think they think there's lots of people who could do well. And I think that's why it almost changes the calculation when we're talking about who could replace who. And uh, Paul, I just want to ask you finally about the next phase, as you put it, about, I suppose, Labour's wider strategy looking ahead to the next general election. Uh, Because back in 2020, you wrote a a piece for The Spectator in which you said that without winning back support in Scotland, that if Labour want to win a majority, they need a swing in England that would be big enough to take North East Somerset from Jacob Rees-Mogg. Are you more optimistic today about Labour's prospects than when you wrote that? I am, but but the fact remains true. You know, that wasn't an opinion, that remains a fact. And I think that what's possible for Labour is to achieve largest party and to either be a minority government or lead a coalition. Not only that, but the steps from that to a fairly substantial and lengthy period in power are, are opening up. It, this may be to the dismay of some of the spectators' readers. I think a, the, the the price of of any future sort of minority transformative minority government that would be a constitutional change, on PR, on elected lords, on regional strong regionalisation of government, and um, there's a lot of people in the Labour Party who are thinking that is the goal, and the way to it, of course, is a strategy that exploits the the conservative difficulties over cost of living because much though I think that there are many policy mistakes that have led to the position where British people are going to see 10% inflation and a two and a, what is it 0.25% recession they're not handling it very well and and as long I, I believe as long as Rishi Sunak is chancellor they can't handle it well because there's no money to level up and there's no money to assuage the problem of cost of living I think we're going to need price controls. I think we're going to need subsidies on basic goods for a while until it goes away. And with all Rishi Sunak sitting there in the Treasury with all the usual Treasury think as well, I'm not sure they can deliver that. And Labour would have to come up with something much more radical. It's what I'm saying. I think Sadiq Khan's move on rent controls has to be the shape of things for, to come for any government of any colour uh, if you're facing stagflation. Paul and Katie, thank you very much for joining. Next, in this week's issue, David Abelafia suggests that Cambridge and Oxford seem to be turning against private school students. He joins us now, along with the Sunday Times' education editor, Sean Griffiths, to discuss, hopefully civilly, whether elite universities should limit the number of places given to private school students. David, in your article for The Spectator this week, you write about the number of the falling number of Oxbridge offers 
being given to private school students. Is this a new pattern emerging? I think what we're looking at is a new pattern in the sense that there's been quite a dramatic fall. I refer to the fall that's occurred in case of candidates from Eton, which nowadays, you know, is a highly academic school. It's not what it was, let's say, 30, 40 years ago, when it was clearly the school just for sort of an elite upper class. And you hear the same from other schools, schools like St Paul's and so on, which always used to send lots of people to Oxford and Cambridge. So what we're looking at is a decline over quite a long period and a tendency to exclude people from some of these uh, prestigious schools. Um, But now it's become very much accelerated. And what I try to do in the article is to explain that there's actually a good reason for this, which is that I think Oxford and Cambridge have broken through the barrier which uh, has long existed, where in a great many comprehensive schools in particular, there was this sort of feeling that Oxford and Cambridge are not for us. And uh, this... Now, you know, because we've sent out lots of missionaries, if you like, these access officers and so on, and we've also had lots of days for, you know, open days when visitors could come to the colleges, look around and so on, that has actually incentivized people from that sort of background to apply to Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, And some of them, you know, are really, really very good. I've met some of these kids. And I mean, some of those, for instance, from the Harris Academies, who have a particular, they have a team of teachers who specialise in university admissions with an eye on Oxbridge. So that's entirely right that some of these people are now getting places and that's going to place a squeeze on places from pe- for people from private schools. But what I find very worrying is that there's been this very sudden drop just in the last few years where you know Eton finds that it's only getting half the number in that it used to and yet is becoming more and more of a, a, a sort of an academic institution you know, a highly academic institution so you're bound to ask what's going on here uh, well what is going on here <laughs> what is going on here I think is that the allowance made to candidates from state schools is very considerable that you know we're beginning to see arguments about whether some people should be admitted who've only got b at a level for instance but the aim of really trying to select students who've got three A stars or something like that. It depends on the subject area, obviously, but this is something which is compromised by the willingness to take in people from state schools in order to increase the state school intake. And what's worrying is, you know, are Oxford and Cambridge admitting people who are going to be able to cope with the course? Now, very many of them, of course, are, but one of the important criteria is to make sure that, and this is particularly true you know, if you talk to people in maths and physics, it's particularly true in the case of disciplines where there's a great deal of 
you know, quite advanced skill that's required in order to be able to cope with courses at top universities. And I'm not just talking about Oxford and Cambridge. And the sort of compromises that have to be made, I remember talking to somebody once, a professor from Cambridge who'd been at another university, and, you know, the whole question about whether physics students actually had to have studied maths at A-level. And you know, I'm not a scientist, but you say to yourself, how could one really get a degree in physics without being a highly practised mathematician? So uh, one of the ways in which Oxford and Cambridge have tried to deal with this has been to set up these sort of introductory years for pupils who, they won't be undergraduates, they will have this preparatory year, but I mean, my own college is taking five. A lot of it began actually in Oxford, where one of the colleges had a larger number than that. That was a sort of an experiment that impressed everybody else. But when you actually add up the figures, it's not going to make that much difference. Uh, And again, it's very much geared to people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. I'm not complaining about that, but that is the fact, that there are people, obviously, who will benefit enormously from exposure to a more academic routine. But, you know, that's, in a sense, it's just a drop in the ocean. Sean, can I just ask you whether you think it is such a bad thing if Oxford and Cambridge start to take fewer applicants from private schools? Do I think it's a bad thing if, if Oxford and Cambridge take fewer people from private schools? No, I don't. If you look at the figures, private schools educate about 7% of children. The proportion for sixth formers is believed to be about 12%. So state school pupils make up about 93% of children in schools here. And at the moment, Cambridge's intake of of state school pupils is around 70%. uh, And that is the highest I think it has ever been. So I find it really hard to accept this argument that private schools are being hard done by. They educate 7% of our children and they are successful in getting in around, I don't know, 40, 50, 40%, something like that, 30, 30, 40% of their pupils over the last few years. That's that's roughly been the proportion. It is, it is going down very, very slowly and the numbers of state, successful state school applicants is going up. And as I say, at Cambridge, it's reached a a high point of around 72%. Uh, at Oxford, I think it stands at around 68 69%. But I, I cannot accept the argument that private school candidates are being hard done by. What I think has happened is that private school candidates have been extremely well done by uh, for years and years and years, and state school applicants are now getting a fair crack of the whip. I think there is further to go. I think both Oxford and Cambridge can take more state school pupils, and I would like to see that happen. David, in your piece, there's an interesting part where you talk about well-qualified candidates who are now being dismissed as being well-taught. What do you think we should make of that? And is that a common thing that you hear at Cambridge? It's certainly something I've heard quite often and um, applied to some of those very academic schools, uh, which have traditionally sent quite large numbers of people to Oxford and Cambridge. Now, you know, I'm not denying that there are people 
who, you know, when one looks at the borderline, and I've been in this position myself in the past, you're looking at candidates who, uh, some of them come from, let's say, comprehensive schools where they haven't had such a good chance. Others come from very top schools, let's say, Westminster, Winchester or whatever, and they've had a tremendous chance. And you look at their performance and you're thinking about their potential and you might well say that the person from the comprehensive school has done fantastically well given the circumstances and the person from the ancient public school has done you know, well, but not actually outstandingly well. And so, of course, yeah, in those circumstances, when you're dealing with rather broad borderline, you tend to go for the people from the state schools. But it's a very crude way of defining who's being admitted. We have to remember that one of the characteristics of the sorts of schools that I'm talking about is that they're highly selective you know, a place like St Paul's or Westminster, these are very highly selective schools, St Paul's Girls' School. You know. And so the sort of comparison, when we start quoting these statistics of 7% and so on, we have actually to think about the group of people who are really very high achievers, whether in state schools or in independent schools. That's where the comparison becomes important. And what's also worrying about the way things have developed lately with statements by the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge is that he wants to bring into this, under this sort of umbrella, these selective grammar schools, uh, which, you know, in many ways are comparable to these highly academic independent schools. And so we're not simply talking about 7%. We're talking about people who have been very high achievers, uh, who've gone through some of the sort of top schools in the country, who've been taught pretty well to university level. And you hear about people who were regarded as dead certs for Oxford and Cambridge who are not getting in. And that is that is worrying, particularly if some of the evidence suggests that weaker candidates are being admitted. And and in my article, I talk about these, these scores on the uh, thinking uh, skills assessment test, uh, where there is actually a differential. It seems to be bigger in Cambridge than in Oxford. But nonetheless, people with higher scores in from independent schools are being rejected. All right, so there are all sorts of other issues here. You know, the interview counts for a lot. Personal statement, as long as that still continues to exist, counts for a lot. Letter of reference, well, nowadays those are open, so I don't know how much it counts for. But, you know, there are these other considerations. There are good reasons sometimes why somebody with a, a very, very high uh, results in the past might be rejected. But we're looking at a pattern, it seems to me, and that that does worry me. Sean, do you, do you think it's right that Oxbridge prioritises a person's background and upbringing, perhaps at the expense of looking at their academic results? Well, I think this is an interesting argument. I haven't seen very much evidence for it. I must, there's a lot of kind of sweeping statements being made, but the hard evidence doesn't really seem to be there. The thinking skills assessment, which is only one element of the admissions process, it's just one test as I understand it, private schools coach for that test. It's one thing that the admissions tutors look for when they are admitting candidates. They also conduct interviews, they look at A-level scores. The personal statement, it's always seemed to me, is is a sort of slightly dodgy thing to look at because anybody could have written it. You could have a teacher writing it on behalf of of a child. So just to say, well, this candidate from a private school got a slightly higher mark than another candidate 
on the thinking skills assessment and yet the tutors in that college admitted the child from a state school well that doesn't prove anything I mean you know one would need to see all the scores across the whole range of criteria that Oxford and Cambridge use to admit admit pupils my feeling is I mean one thing I would really like to ask is which school did David go to did he go to a private school or did he go to a state school because it does seem to me that a lot of this argument a lot of this passion that is felt on both sides of the debate is because candidates is because is because speakers um, are actually arguing from their own positions their own experience their own background and it's almost a defense of past privilege David do you want to answer that um, I'm happy to say that I went to St Paul's and I'm happy to say that I've been a governor of the Perth School in Cambridge, uh, which are both highly academic schools. Uh, but for me, what really matters is their academic uh, performance, which has been you know, stunning over the years and a concern that if you talk to uh, teachers at these schools, that the students they really expected to get in are not doing so. Now, I, I accept the point that, you know, these schools may well try to train people for the thinking skills assessment, but the thinking skills assessment has been devised in a way, I mean, this is what they say in Oxford and Cambridge, uh, it's been devised in a way which is supposed to um, not to favour any particular, not to be teachable, basically, that this is something which uh, will assess people's potential but cannot actually be taught for in the way that A-levels can be taught for. So uh, I'd be a bit wary of assuming that everybody who goes through that, uh, who does gets a high mark, has really benefited from some sort of special coaching. And- David, just to finish on, I mean, parents who are listening to this who think, you know, hopefully their child might apply to Oxbridge, would they be advised to be sending their child to a state school rather than a private school if, if Oxbridge is no longer quite as keen on private schools? Uh, but well, if they live in Cambridge, of course, a lot of them uh, decide to take their children out of the purse or, or purse uh, girls, as used to be or whatever, and put them in Hills Road Sixth Form College, which, although it has 2,000 pupils, it's a very, very large school. Uh, for two years, they're exposed to very high-level teaching within the state system. They then qualify as state school applicants. I think some colleges are beginning to sort of pick up on that and might uh, hold that against candidates. But in Cambridge, it's become a very widespread habit, actually. Now, not every city has an institution like Hills Road, which is effectively a sort of senior grammar school, but they don't call it that because that would give away the fact that it's selective and that it is like a traditional grammar school, but only teaching A-levels. And Sean, what do you make of that? Parents who deliberately try and game the system so that their child is applying from a state school? I, I don't know. I've never, I've never come across parents who've actually done that. It seems to me a big risk to take a child out of a school where they're happy and they're achieving well and put them into a sixth form on the vague idea that maybe that will give them an advantage. I don't think it would give them an advantage. I haven't seen any evidence that if you move your child into a state sixth form from a private school, you're more likely to get into Oxford or Cambridge. I think that's a myth. What I do think is that there is talent right across this nation and this is talent that is not getting the chance that it deserves. And it may be a really bright child in a school that is not very good. 
you know, somewhere in the north of England that doesn't send pupils to Oxford and Cambridge. Those children need a chance to shine. They deserve a chance to shine. And I, I thank you. I'm, I'm grateful to David for acknowledging his own background. My own background is different. And I, too, am arguing from a position, you know, where I went from a state school to Oxford and it completely changed my life. So I'm arguing from, you know, my position. He's arguing from his. And I think what's really important is to look at the evidence, to look at the statistics, to look at the data. There's no evidence that these stake school kids who are getting into Oxford and Cambridge are dropping out, are doing any worse than any other child. And there is some evidence from some research that in some Russell Group universities, they are performing better in their final degrees than the privately educated candidates. So excellence, yes, but from wherever it comes, it is not confined to a small group of private schools whose parents pay £40,000 a year to have their children board there. David and Sean, thank you very much for joining. And finally, on to the menopause. In the issue this week, Michelle Kirsch says that whilst awareness has been raised of the menopause, it's actually better to not talk about it too much. She joins us now along with Laura Biggs from the organisation Menopause Matters, who I think probably disagrees. Michelle, in the magazine this week, you lament the march of the menosplainers and suggest we've reached peak menopause. When did the menopause start getting quite so much airtime? I think it's been going on for many, many years. I only started taking it. It's really picked up pace over the last few years when every celebrity and sort of journalist, so female journalist, have, has written that article that all women, a lot of women journalists write when they first have babies. Like, I am the first woman to have a baby ever. I'm the first woman to have a menopause ever. And only I can tell you the the truth and the wisdom about this event when we all go through it. And I believe it's well-intentioned and it's there to help women but it's really picked up pace so we have the perimenopause which is lead up to the menopause and we've got the menopause itself so between those two things it, we, we could be talking if it's a really bad one 20 or so years of something that is a natural event that is now turned into a pathology and every you know with it's on the telly Davina McCall who it's just She's just so hyper and so go get it and whatever. And uh, I, I think one of the things I really objected to about what, what she said is that she likened it kind of histrionically to having a brain tumour. And I thought it's a bit it's a bit over the top if you've actually had a brain tumour, which I, I hate to say I have not had a brain tumour, but it's bad, it's uncomfortable, but it's, it's a bit over the top at the moment. And Laura, what did you make of... Michelle's argument. Do you think some of this is is over the top? Well, no, I don't actually. If you read some of the stories that are coming in on the Menopause Mandate website, then you wouldn't think it was over the top because many of them are absolutely heartbreaking. You know, we're talking about women who have to leave their jobs. and We're talking about women who are ambulance drivers, paramedics, teachers, high profile jobs. And this stage of life is stopping them functioning. So no, I don't think Davina was overreacting. Uh, and sorry, could you could you just tell our listeners a little bit about what the menopause mandate is about? Well, it's a group of women. Many of them are celebrities and journalists, and who have written books and have been or going through this stage of life, who are using their presence, I think, to help make change happen. Because what we're discovering, menopause mandates a group of women, I'm one of them, and I run a, a Let's All Talk Menopause webinar, which is 
we get experts in regularly to help women to understand this stage of life because it has been going on since time began, there's no doubt about that, and many of us suffered in silence for many, many years. But you don't need to, and there is routes to help and support. So that's what we're trying to do to help people to understand a bit more about this stage of life and also to make sure that they are that people are diagnosed properly because many people are diagnosed with depression and are given antidepressants and beta blockers when it is HRT is what they need. So that's what we're trying to do. And we're trying to stop the shortages of HRT. I mean, obviously we can't do that alone, but we're trying to uh, rally and get the government to stop what's happening to HRT because there is a form of desperation for many women they're so worried that if they stop taking their HRT, then they will stop functioning. Michelle, you make the point in your piece that the menopause seems to have become a, a sort of lucrative theme with a vast, anxious and introspective audience, as you put it. Do you think the menopause has been commercialised and, and do you see that as a, a bad thing? I, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's been commercialized. I think that awareness is, is really important and in discussion about it is really important. I just, my concern is how wide this discussion goes. I might be more cynical that I think that by getting men into the discussion, what used to be kind of a private conversation between mum and kind of, it could even be as subtle as a glance, you know, like we suddenly both, you know, take off a jump or a clothes or you throw a tin of water over yourself and it's just this very informal thing by making it this very formal thing it's it's again emphasizing the pathology of it and this is not to say that women don't suffer terribly from it because they do I don't think I don't I, I'm not so cynical as to say that it's a, a money spinner thing but I do feel that it's there is also a place for having these conversations more quietly and I'm not a prude and I'm not convinced that having a wider discussion and bringing men on board and trying to perhaps, tell me if I'm wrong, try to le- legislate it somehow that this will make things better. I, They've not done that with menstruation. They've not done that with childbirth or any gynecological event that a woman goes through. And if you think about all the things that we do go through, so puberty, uh, menstruation, childbirth, you can make a case for all of those things being pretty hideous postpartum depression, but they're just parts of life for most women. Laura, can I ask you about two points which Michelle uh, made there? And I'd like to get your thoughts on them, if I may. The first is I'd like to know your thoughts about bringing men into the conversation. Uh, And the second point about legislation, I wondered what you thought of Caroline Harris's Menopause Support and Services Bill, which I think is currently on its its second reading. Firstly, getting men involved. Um, Many of our menopausal women are married to men and the men need to understand at this stage of life because it can be, for some women, not all, some women sail through it, as we do through childbirth and puberty. Some women have terrible puberty and terrible childbirth and equally terrible menopause. But at a stage where you are in your life when you're bringing up children and you are often caring for elderly parents, it can be a very tricky time of life to navigate. And lots of marriages suffer because of women changing and going through menopause and men need to understand and be able to recognise it so they can help their partners get the help. 
so that's what I'd say about getting men. Men definitely need to know about it, both as husbands and partners and employers, and more importantly, because many senior men will have lots of senior women who work for them, and they will need to understand and recognise the symptoms that can affect how a woman can work because of brain fog, which is a big, big area, and, and it does affect lots of women. And, it re- and that's what Davina was referring to, because she felt at some stages that she would have to stop presenting. And she's one of our best presenters in the country. And to be able to stop because she couldn't remember people's names was serious for her. So serious that she thought that there was something wrong with her other than menopause. There's also, sorry, just let me leap in here for a moment. Apart from the work front, there's also the domestic front. So let's take the situation whereby women who are having children later in life, I had my first at 33 and my second at 35. By the time I I myself was going through the change, my children were teenagers. It's the perfect storm. You've got the hormonal teenagers and you've got the hormonal women. If I were a bloke, I'd just tear off, you know, take lots of life, let them get on with it, you know. And, and so, sorry, Laura, just if I could ask you about your thoughts on Caroline Harris's uh, menopause support and services bill. I wonder what, you, what your thoughts on that I'm not completely up to speed with the parliamentary debates that's going on. I'm, I'm, I run a different part of the campaign. But if we're referring to Carolyn is trying to get through Parliament uh, one prescription charge and that was back in October that that was put forward and it was passed that there would be one prescription charge because currently many women take two forms of HRT. So you take your oestrogen and progesterone and you have to pay for that in two separate prescription charges. And also you have to HRT is generally prescribed every three months. So you could have quite an expensive journey if you're buying both prescriptions. So the bill was to get one prescription charge for a year. Now, that was meant to come into play in March. And in March, it was announced that it actually it would be deferred to April 2023. And that is because of logistical reasons. A, that there's a HRT shortage, so to prescribe for more than three months is tricky at the moment. And B, to get the logistics in place for the pharmacies and the doctors to be able to prescribe for a year is difficult. So what we're asking for is that that doesn't get kicked into the long grass, that it isn't April 23 that it happens, that it does happen earlier, and that people are prescribed the right HRT for them. And just to finish on, can I ask, both of your best pieces of advice for women who are either going through the menopause or approaching it? Michelle? Having, well, I did it the wrong way, uh, which is, I, I drank heavily and steadily throughout mine. This is not a cure and I would not advocate this for anybody. It was just a bad time in my life. But uh, failing that, I think always carry water with you. Have conversations with your female friends who are going through the same thing at the same time so you can just, you know, you can have a conversation about it and explain, but don't over explain to people. Just say, I'm feeling a bit, you know, whatever you're feeling at the time and you need you need to step out for a while. And if you can't, if you if your symptoms are severe and you've got HRT, if you can get HRT, then get it. I didn't happen to need it, but I'm for it and I'm for easy access to it. And Laura? I would say be your own advocate, you know, do, do your research, find out about it and go to your GP if you're suffering. Do not suffer in silence. There are, are ways that you can help. 
But again, do your own research, listen to as much uh, information as you can and don't drink your way through it. Laura and Michelle, thank you very much indeed. And that's everything this week. So all of these pieces we've discussed, you can read if you just pick up a copy of the magazine this week. And we look forward to you joining us again next week.